You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, I'm Holly McMahon, and I'm pleased to introduce this conversation on artificial intelligence, national security law, and ethics featured on today's podcast. This discussion with Judge James Baker and Corin Stone is part of our series on emerging critical issues in national security law. Good afternoon, everyone. Today's hour will be devoted to artificial intelligence and ethics in the form of a conversation with Corin Stone. We have three goals. The first is that conscious of the model rules 1.1 and 1.3 dealing with diligence and competence or competence and diligence, we want to discuss what we think that might entail when it comes to AI and ethics. And as you'll see right now and to this point, a lot of what has been addressed in the ethical area with AI comes in the form of principles. And some of those principles uh, we're going to talk about today, including the IC principles. Rule 2.1 contemplates that lawyers will serve as advisors and counselors and draw on information beyond the law to inform their work. And we will look at the principles there as well to see how lawyers might advise in the area of AI and ethics. And then finally, our third goal is to address the question of how would we recommend lawyers go about getting in the room? And by the way, what is the room you want to get into if you're a lawyer? Is it the research and development room? Is it the policy room? Is it the use room? As it turns out, it's all of those. But we're especially lucky to have as our lead conversant, Corin Stone, who I think is specially situated to talk about that question. How do you get in the room and which room is it? Let me tell you a little bit about Corin for the one person out there who may not know her already. Corin is a scholar in residence at American University, their law school at American University. But more importantly, she's on leave from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, essentially on sabbatical. And with regard to that, I should note, therefore, that all the things she says today, are she's saying in her personal capacity, not as a official government person, but in her personal capacity. At the DNI, she was the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Strategy and Engagement. The position has been revamped, but in the area of AI, the concept of engagement is particularly important as we figure out how to reach out and how to reach out effectively to academia and industry and so on. So Corin is ideally suited to talk to us today with that in mind. She's also served among the 73 other positions she's held. Uh, she's also served as the Principal Deputy General Counsel of DNI from 2005 to 2010, and also as Executive Director of the National Security Agency. She brings a unique blend of law policy to this topic. And one more thing, which I think is very important to note, she spent a year in Iraq as a lawyer at the State Department working with the Coalition Provisional Authority. So Corin also brings to us today uh, a perspective from the field, because oftentimes Washington folks are doing Washington things and they don't forget that it, they forget that it actually has to work and has to work in the field, wherever the field is. So Corin brings all these things together. And then a fourth virtue, which is really what I was after. Corin is one of those people who is as nice as she is smart. But what I was after here was her ability to see over the horizon. So great at the tactical moment, 
and getting the mission accomplished, but also the ability to see over the horizon. And with artificial intelligence, that's a critical skill at this time. So thank you, Corin, for joining us. I'm gonna start with a question unless you would like to make any opening statements. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm glad to talk with you about this. I'm gonna start with a framework question, a chapeau question, as they might say at the State Department. The National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence has stated that ethics is, or could be, what defines democratic artificial intelligence in the national security space and distinguishes it from authoritarian artificial intelligence in the national security space. Fair enough, good point, but what's ethics? When we use the term ethics, AI and ethics, how do you define that term and what do you think we're using it for? Well, you know, I think it's really important that we have that baseline understanding on the front end, because you're right, if we don't all agree on what ethics is, then, then none of this matters. I, to me, ethics is has always been doing what's fair and what's right, living up to our morals and values, especially in terms of how we treat others with kindness and honesty and fairness. Of course, we always have the law, which dictates certain behaviors, but the law doesn't and shouldn't cover everything. And I think ethics is what helps guides us in the absence of the law. I always go back to the kindergarten rule of, you know, treating others as you'd want to be treated. Um, and I always remember something my dad told me while I was in law school, preparing for exams, you know, which was that if you're really not sure of the answer, think about what's right and what's fair, and that's usually the answer. And so for me, that's kind of what ethics means. And in the context of AI, I think ethics is about using AI fairly and for good purposes. Um, which I think then encompasses a whole lot of things. It requires that you understand how it works. It requires that you think about bias and how bias might be introduced. It requires that you protect it and that you think about second and third order effects, um, that it performs as intended and doesn't cause harm. There are so many different ways that ethics can play out in the context of AI. But for me, it's, it's really about kind of those basic concepts of doing what's right and, and doing what's fair. That's tremendous, what, what is fair and what is right. And I like your reference to second and third order effects. We're gonna to get to that in a few minutes when we talk through a few hypotheticals. When we talk about AI, and, and let's, say, let's stipulate up front that we're not talking about shopping algorithms. That's Harvey Vishikoff's specialty. We're talking about national security uses of artificial intelligence. What is your biggest ethical concern with AI in the area of national security? Yeah, there are so many variables with AI and national security. And so it's hard to pick one, but I think my biggest concern is that it, it can be used for harmful purposes. And when it gets into the hands of authoritarian governments, not only can it, I think we see it being used to embolden and empower people who are you know, trampling on human rights and, and that kind of thing. And so I worry about the abuses that can be perpetrated with AI. And, and then the flip side of that is then the security of AI and making sure that it's, it is being used, at least for, as far as, you know, the federal government or, or American values, it's being used in, in the way that we intend it to be used. But I worry a little bit about, um, a lot about the harmful purposes that, that can be used if somebody wants to. Well, you made an allusion, uh, no doubt, to Chinese use of AI for harmful purposes. What are one or two harmful purposes that you might imagine the USG, the United States government, might either use or stumble upon? I mean, I think we have seen, and not just in the in the at the federal level, but at state and local levels, we've seen unintended bias 
that actually leads to a usage of AI in a way that um, is unfair and maybe ends up targeting communities that are unintended. And it kind of perpetuates. We, we've seen this, for example, in the cases of you know, facial recognition where it's been fed data that looks a certain way and therefore it can't recognize anything outside that data. So, you know, it may only recognize white males and therefore think only white males are qualified or whatever, because that's the data it's been fed. That's the predominant data, that kind of thing. So I think there are unintended biases that get introduced through data that we see and hear about all the time that could result in something harmful happening without anyone really knowing or intending that. So are you of the camp? I've, I've come across three camps, essentially, on facial recognition. One is it works, calm down. Another is it's horrible, it's full of bias. And the third is I have no idea what you're talking about and come back in a few weeks. Um, Maybe I'm in a fourth camp. What is your I, I feel like it works. And I think there's a lot of goodness in AI that we absolutely need to harness. And I think there's a lot of, it's tricky and, and it can be misused and we don't understand it fully today. And we don't know how to interact with it in the best way possible. We haven't, you know, figured everything out about AI. And so I think there's dangers with it and we just have to be smart about that. I, I think pretending there's nothing dangerous about it doesn't help us resolve those issues. We want to resolve those issues so we can use it smartly. So I think it's a little bit of both. What uh, One way the U.S. government so far has responded to the coming AI revolution, as you well know, is with principles. And in the last year, we've seen a proliferation of principles. Everybody has principles now. And the audience will not know this, but we had a lot of back and forth over which principles were fair game to ask you about. And I was having fun coming up with obscure principles. But I think we should focus on the DNI principles, the intelligence community principles as a place to start with a, a sprinkle of DOD principles, both of which have been adapted in the past year. Before asking you to give us a tour of the principles, could I ask, did you participate in their drafting, just so we might understand your background vis-a-vis -vis them and, and indeed whether you bring any bias to your discussion? Right. <laughs> Good question. Um, I did not participate in the drafting. I was in the management chain of the effort, so I was supportive of creating them um, and helped to bring them to closure, but I was not participating in the drafting of them. Good. Okay. So if you don't mind, would you care to yeah. share some of the principles? And, and we're, we're thinking here about Rule 2.1 for the ethics portion of this event. This is what we as lawyers are bringing to the table in addition to our knowledge of the law, we're also bringing our knowledge of principles and ethics. And this is a foundational source of some of those ethics and principles. So Corin, please take us through the DNI principles. <laughs> so if I can back up just for a second, um, I, I wanna mention that, as you said, you know, there are principles everywhere you look today. So in, in the government, both in the ICNDOD and then OSTP has put out principles more broadly. There are principles in the private sector, in international organizations, and that's a, that's a good thing. But it is hard to kind of get a handle on all these different principles. And I just wanted to flag that there's this great study out of Harvard, uh, the Berkman Klein Center, that actually uh, that came out last year, about this time last year, and it compares more than 35 different principles and helps 
kind of bring them together and figure out what the themes are across them because there are so many variables. There are so many common themes, but then there are a lot of random principles here or there that one or the other may have. And so that's been a really, really helpful study in my view to kind of think about big picture, what are the themes that all of these groups care about? And we can come back to that if you want. Um, but, but generally I would say, you know, DODs and the ICs should be very consistent because we worked them together and we, we, we intentionally wanted them to be very consistent because of course we have members of the IC who are also part of DOD, um, many members. And so the last thing we want is for them to be pulled in different directions on this. So we worked really hard to make sure that they were consistent, although they're not identical because of course we have slightly different missions and slightly different needs. So the ICs are respecting the law and acting with integrity, transparent and accountable, objective and equitable, human-centered development and use, secure and resilient, and informed by science and technology. These are paraphrased. And then we also in the IC put out a framework that goes along with that, that asks a bunch of questions and tries to kind of um, spur the conversation for people who are practicing and using AI and need to kind of think about what the issues are they need to spot, when they need what they need to ask the lawyers, what worries they need to have as they think about these principles. DOD's principles, they have just five, but they encompass a whole lot underneath them. They're responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. And again, I think, you know, some of the words are the same, some of the words are different, but we view these as entirely consistent um, because they encompass a whole lot of thought underneath just those simple words. Um, if you go back to the, the, the Berkman Klein Center study, it's interesting because they come up with eight principles that are sort of common across these 36-ish different sets. And they're very similar. You'll, you'll hear the same thing, privacy, accountability, safety and security, transparency and explainability, fairness and non-discrimination, human control of technology, professional responsibility, and promotion of human values. They're all sort of dancing around those same issues that I, you know, as I inartfully put at the beginning, and it's, it's, it's such a simplification, but, you know, right and fair, what's right and fair, it's sort of all those same things I feel are wrapped up. So, you know, there are a lot of differences if you look at the different principles, but in general, there's just a lot of consensus around what the major themes are. And so I think that's all goodness. That's great. That's where we want to be. What do you think is missing from the principles? I'm not sure anything is missing in the sense that there is so much that you can sweep in there. So I looked at some of the differences. Um, you know, for example, there are principles out there that have the right to erasure, which basically means you can, you know, wipe yourself off the internet and people can't find you. That's a big one in Europe. Or there's one that's environmental responsibility or notification when interacting with AI. There are a lot of interesting principles out there that don't cut across every single set. But in terms of the IC and DOD principles, I think because they are so broad, you know, it's a pro and a con. I think one pro of it being so broad is that you can define it in many, many ways and you can put a lot of things in there that you intend for it to mean. The con, of course, is that, you know, it's really broad and, and hard to pin down. But I'm not sure that I would say anything in particular is missing. I don't know. What do you think is missing? Do you think something's missing? <laughs> um, well, sure. Well, there's always something missing. And I think I, I think I, uh, I'm, I'm tricking you because this is something, this is your own point. What's missing is a plan about how to implement these. Oh, yes. yes. And it's something Absolutely. you and I talked about. So I'm sandbagging you in the sense that I right. make the question sound as if it was about a principle that's missing. <laughs> and and really what's missing is thanks for, thanks for telling me to be fair. Now, 
And that's been like my hobby horse from the beginning, which is these principles are all well and good, but who's doing anything with them? Like, are, how do we implement them? How do we make them real? It doesn't, they're, they're, not, they're not worth anything if it, they're just sitting on paper on a shelf somewhere. The audience should notice the pivot now to uh, the implementation stage of the operation. But uh, before we get to that, uh, another thing that's missing, and I'm not sure it's missing bad or missing good, um, but it's, in, it's an interesting thing, which is Google's principles. They're sort of distinct, first, because they're Google, but secondly, because they also have a concept of these are our principles about what we will not do. So they everybody wants to be fair and equitable and traceable and all these things. But then Google goes ahead and says, but we're not going to do this. Right. Um, and then you can have a debate whether they're really not going to do that or not. But it does raise the question uh, for you, which is, should the USG in general or in specific cases have, we're not going to do these red lines. I, I found that really interesting as well when I saw that they had kind of a, a list of things they would not do. And I think, you know, to your point, I'm not sure how realistic that is. You can't trace where your stuff goes down to the user every single time. And, and I think some of the principles that they have of what they will not do, they won't contribute to weapons technology or surveillance technology. A, I don't think that's realistic because again, you can't know how people are using it every time. And B, I mean, we are living in a world where there is a conduct of nations and that conduct of nations requires, you know, um, being in times of war and times of peace. And it requires that nations have weapons. And like, I just, I think it's unrealistic to think that, you know, you're never going to touch any of that. On the other hand, I think there's, it's an interesting question about whether we should have, from the U.S. government perspective, things we won't do. And part of me thinks that in having our affirmative principles of what we must do, you start to weed out things that don't fit into that. Um, I, I would not suggest, my own view is I don't think we should have categories of stuff, you know, other than obviously we won't break the law. Right. Um, so we're not, we're, you know, that, that should, should go without saying if we have to say it, we should, but, you know, we won't break the law. And then I think there are going to be scenarios where we encounter things that we kind of question whether we should use it in that way. And that will help define how we aren't going to use it. But I don't know that we could today say these are the five things we won't do because I'm not sure we understand enough kind of all the effects. Again, you kind of want to understand the second and third order effects. What impact does it have? Is it doing what you expect it to do? And if it is, then maybe you're fine. But if it suddenly does something you didn't expect, now there may be a use that you want to say we're not going to do. So I, I kind of think we need a little bit of practice under our belt to figure that out. I, I wouldn't want to just go out with categories at this moment, other than, of course, following the law. And it may be that there's a line here where distinguish between a principle and a policy uh, may be a semantic exercise, among other things. I can think of some policies that we might well adopt. Mm -hmm. um, for example, one that's out there is attaching AI applications to nuclear weapons or nuclear command and control. And what I'm seeking to do th through asking you these questions is to provoke the audience, um, not necessarily in a chant chat interactive way, but in a go back to work way, uh, to think about where these lines might be drawn. So you've suggested there's different ways of doing it. You could choose a policy line like no transferring AI that does facial recognition to China. And so you can make it a kind of China thing, or you can make it a function thing like we'll follow the law, or we will only use AI that's been demonstrably capable of a confidence threshold of X. Right. 
Um, Because I think we probably could agree that we don't want to use AI applications that don't work. Right. Um, You know, that's a a very uh, rigorous ethical standard. Right. Um, (laughs) I don't know why we don't make these rules. We should write these rules. They're fabulous. But it it does beg the question, because in an area where we're talking about uh, machine-human teaming, anything that supplements and helps human judgment, in theory, is a good thing, even if it's only 10% reliable. Um, so one of the things that I, the government has to figure out is, is, are there thresholds beyond which we or below which we will not use AI? And are those thresholds generic or are they specific to application? Do you, right. do you care to comment on that spiel right I there? Think, um, I think there probably are some that could be generic, but like I think about one as well where what if we said something like um, we will never use AI without human on the loop or whatever, right? That's a big issue. And then you have the issue of does that actually make it safer in many instances? And I can I can see a scenario where a government would say, no, we're always going to have a human like hit the button. And I can also see the scenario where that's too slow. And so I don't know, you know, how comfortable are we with those principles, maybe we want that kind of a policy right now while we don't know enough about AI. And then it may be that as time goes on and we learn more and we understand what it does and what it doesn't, and we have fail safes and security and all the rest, now we're more comfortable saying, okay, in this particular scenario, maybe we don't have to have that rule. And so I I think that, you know, again, we can start with some general categories perhaps that we think are going to be important and, and should apply until we know more or until we're proven otherwise. But I think we need to stay open to the possibility that as we do further develop these technologies and learn more about them, that some of this may change. And then we'll have to have that discussion further down the line. A fair and a good question has come in, which is, this is all great, but you can't implement something unless you define what you're implementing it against or with. So do you care? uh, Do you have any favorite definitions of AI? What are we talking about in any event? It's, it's tough. I mean, everybody has a different definition and, you know, the NSCAI has got some definitions. And I mean, in my mind, what I think AI is, is machines assisting with sorting through data, with finding patterns, with ensuring speediness of all of those things. And I think it's machines assisting humans doesn't necessarily always mean the human has to do the thing, but it's machines getting us more information than we could otherwise get in a way that is digestible to us. Um, that that isn't otherwise. So, you know, that's not a great definition at all. It's not succinct. Um, there are lots of definitions out there, like you say, um, but I think it's clear that it's machines assisting humans to make better decisions because they're either seeing more data, they're getting it more quickly, they're able to sort through and find, you know, the needle in the haystack, and it's all sorts of different types of applications. It could be human language translation, it could be um, an analytic, uh, you know, algorithm that finds, you know, aberrations and data. It could be all sorts of types of assistance that helps us get through data and understand data better than we could otherwise do. Um, before we go to implementation and you guide us with great specificity through every AI application and implement the principles, I do. I want to just uh, for those who don't have their copy of the IC uh, ethics principles and framework in front of them, I, I just want to make sure the audience is aware of what's in there. And one of the things, the framework is essentially a series of questions and inquiries uh, under each of the principles. Uh, things you should consider if your concern is 
human judgment and accountability, what might that look like in terms of what you should be considering? And one of the things that's useful and takes these principles one step further to the implementation line is at least ask and puts into play uh, some of the indicative things that might, uh, that might inform that judgment about how the principle is being applied. One of the things that's fun about this framework as well for lawyers is it's written from the policy side. So I like to make lists of questions that lawyers should ask technologists and policy people about AI. This is a list largely directed at policy people and operators about what they should be asking. And then the lawyer can come and say, that's interesting, now I'm gonna ask this question, or I'm gonna make sure I know the answer to that question. And so I would uh, I commend these the framework to anybody in our audience who's working in the area of AI to look at these questions and then adopt them and adapt them to your context, because they're good questions. Um, yeah, no, I think that's great. And I, I mean, one of the things about the framework that always has given me pause is that it's a little bit daunting. It's like eight pages of single spaced questions that you could ask in different scenarios. And I think for some people looking at it, they might, you know, sort of be taken aback and say, oh my gosh, I, I can't possibly ask all these questions, you know, in time to, to make my project happen. And, and the fact is, it's not meant to be a checklist. It's not meant for someone to ask every single question. Um, hopefully you can go to the section that's in, you know, relevant to whatever your project is and then figure out which questions um, are appropriate. But I think it's important also to, to remember that this is not a governance structure and this is not a tool that's baked in to an activity. And that's where I think we need to head. This is something for the IC because we have now 18 different elements in the IC, um, none of whom you know, really uh, answer only to the DNI. And the DNI cannot tell them exactly what to do in terms of their governance structures and tools down to the kind of detail and tactical level, which is what needs to happen. So really, this is meant to guide the agencies in creating a governance structure and thinking about tools that might actually help people navigate this. Um, so I think it's a great start, and I think it's probably what the DNI can do in terms of the IC. But what you see at DOD is is a little bit more tangible because they have the authority over DOD to say you will implement it this way. Um, and we don't have that same authority in the IC. So it is it is a daunting document, but it isn't meant to be a, a, um, a checklist. You don't have to go down every single question. It's meant to be a tool to help generate those conversations, like you said, and then to spur the agencies to say, okay, what kind of governance structure do you wanna have around this? What kind of tools, how do we bake this in? You know, I, it brings to mind a little bit from my NSA days, some of the compliance um, activities that happen there at NSA where they baked it into the technology. So, you know, for example, you might be looking at a screen and want to do something. And until you fill out a justification, you can't move to the next screen, you know, and then people can come on the back end and look at that and decide whether that justification is sufficient. And that helps bake the compliance into the process all along the way so that it's a little bit easier for people who are trying to kind of understand how to navigate this. I, I hope that something, I don't know if that's the perfect analogy, but I hope that there will be tools that we can use to help people apply this in a really a more tangible way, because I do think that it's it can be overwhelming if you try to think about what how you apply this in kind of your day-to-day -day, um, world where you're trying to move through, through things at a pretty quick 
pace. And I do think, like I say, DOD has a little bit more um, abilities here and they're, they're doing this in the Jake, their Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Um, they have someone there who is leading the implementation of their ethics principles. And, and she's looking at things, of course, like training and, and you know, multidisciplinary cohorts, but also processes, you know, model cards and data cards and things that make it more real where someone can come and um, actually approve certain steps along the way that there are gates that you go through and maybe even, you know, putting things into contracts and stuff. So I think there are more tangible steps we can take to make them real, depending on kind of what level you're at. And we really need to think about that in a holistic way. Uh, that's tremendous because that's leading us into the implementation area. I have one more framework question before we go to implementation. Identifying and addressing risk is best achieved by involving appropriate stakeholders. And in the intelligence community, this is particularly terrifying uh, to include someone other than the three people who are in on your secret. Um, but it's terrifying in government generally. And when I think about stakeholders uh, in the area of AI and potential bias and privacy and data, I'm not just thinking about the government actor and the operator. I'm thinking about civil liberties people, privacy officers, but I'm also thinking, I think we're really talking about people outside the government, not just the DNI or CIA privacy officer, uh, which is a little inside baseball, very good, but inside baseball. Um, what do you think is meant by stakeholders here? And if you were advising in your personal capacity, the DNI, uh, as she drafts her framework for AI, which she's indicated she will be doing, how would you implement this concept of stakeholders? If I'm concerned about bias and facial recognition uh, for anybody other than a white male, are there stakeholders I should be bringing in from outside the government to take a look at all this? That's yeah, absolutely. I think you need to have the experts um, who understand how it's being used, how it could be used. Um, I think you need to have the civil society groups in. And actually, I should have mentioned that in creating these principles, um, we did consult with civil society and others outside government um, to try and get that input into the principles as well. Um, I think we've seen this, you know, over the years with the way that our civil liberties and privacy officers are engaging outside of government more and more um, on a regular basis on any number of activities. And I think it, it will probably follow the same kind of path, right, where we have conversations outside of government, outside the IC in general terms about general activities without kind of going deep into the specific applications or the specific operations that may be classified. And then we take what we learn from those conversations and try to apply them ourselves internally to make sure that we're, you know, sort of staying true to those principles. And I think the public is a stakeholder. I think we have, you know, if we had any questions about that before in the last decade, we've learned pretty clearly that if we don't have a conversation with the public about what we're doing at a high level, and if there's not enough understanding about what we're doing, then we're going to lose it. We're not going to have the authority to do it anymore. Um, people are going to be very, uh, you know, adamant that, you know, we can only use it for certain things or whatever the case may be. And, and we'll have authorities pulled. And so I, I am in the camp of there's a level of information and a level of conversation that we should be having with um, the public, with civil society, with others to make sure that we understand kind of what the values and the sentiment is right now. And then we have to take it in-house and apply it ourselves. And of course, not everything can be or should be shared, but there is a level of information that can and should be, and we need to embrace that and really create partnerships with those folks 
um, so that they also understand that they're not going to see and hear everything. Um, that's unrealistic, but um, this is, we're doing this outreach in good faith. We want to hear what they have to say, and we want to be able to apply what we've learned from them back in the spaces um, when we bring it back in-house. So I think, you know, I think it's a conversation that should include many, many more than just um, the IC or even just the, the federal government. Uh, let's turn to a couple of hypotheticals. I'm going to give you a menu and you get to pick one uh, and then we'll talk about it for a little bit. And then if that was no fun, we'll pick another one that is more challenging. Okay, so so here's a, a menu of potential use cases. The hiring and screening of applicants, classification and declassification decisions, because we know that AI algorithms do it better and more accurately and faster than humans, target acquisition and queuing, facial recognition, personnel security, by which I mean the use of predictive algorithms to anticipate CI and other security risk. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll include that in the category of behavioral prediction, but behavioral prediction can be things like predicting who might be at suicide risk in the military, what foreign actors might do. So, so there's a, a menu. Do you care to implement the principles uh, with regard to any of those hypotheticals? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, all of those are, I think, what we would expect AI to help with, you know, sorting through the data, applying rules consistently, finding anomalies, making matches, understanding patterns. That's exactly what we hope AI would help us do. I think let's, I mean, let's take number one, hiring and screening of applications. It sounds really straightforward, um, but that's exactly where we saw the problems happen in the private sector where it's, you know, the data that was fed in was a bunch of names that were maybe standard American sounding names, um, that you know had a certain kind of background, maybe they went to certain schools or whatever. And so then it, the algorithm learned only to recognize those kinds of names um, and then would screen out anybody with a different name. Uh, and so there are there's unintended bias potentially in there, depending on what the data is that you're feeding into it, which I think is a huge, huge issue for the intelligence community, um, how to get good data that actually matches what you're trying to do. Um, and then I think, you know, it, the, it spins from there. Once you now have introduced a bias in the system, now what's, what it's spitting out at you is not necessarily the suite of candidates you're hoping to get. And it's potentially perpetuating um, what, what the bias is that went in. Um, and so I think that's important. It's not fair. It's not equitable. How much do we understand about the, um, what the algorithm is doing? So depending on how the algorithm is created, maybe it may or may not have some transparency involved. Um, and so, and of course, from our perspective, when you're putting that kind of data in, there are privacy issues. Um, we want to be careful with resumes and information about people. Um, and so there are all sorts of, I think, questions you have to ask yourself, even in the most basic of applications, you know, these back office tasks where we really need some help. We just have a lot to sort through. And I think a lot of, in the private sector, everybody's using it in these manners or wants to use it in these manners. But even the most benign kind of application has a lot of potential unintended consequences that can have huge ramifications for who gets hired, who gets an interview, what our community looks like. We know we need to reflect American society and we need to have better diversity all across the government, including in the IC. And so we might be inadvertently, you know, cutting against that if we're not careful about what algorithms we're using, what data we're using, and really understanding that. And, and I'm not the person to understand that. I mean, I can get it from a general sense, but I need to be sitting side by side with a technologist who's explaining to me 
what they're doing, how they're doing it, what what the science is behind it, and what data it's looking at. Does that mean you're sitting next to them and looking at the parameters that they're building into the algorithm? What is it exactly that you're doing as you're sitting next to them? Well, this, I mean, this goes to something that you alluded to earlier, which is having a lawyer in the room at every step of the way. And I, I think it's a certain kind of lawyer. Not every lawyer is going to want to go through the algorithm step by step. But I do think um, we need lawyers and, you know, an interdisciplinary conversation throughout the life cycle of AI, whether it's designing the algorithms or getting the data or figuring out where you're going to use the AI once it's uh, once it's in or what the security uh, parameters are and how it's uh, you know impervious to CI issues and all of those pieces, how it treats the data, how does it protect U.S. persons information in particular for the IC, that's huge, of course, protecting U.S. persons information and making sure that we know where it's going and how it's being used and all that. So yes, I would have a, a lawyer sitting there next to the engineer um, and asking questions about how they're creating the algorithms and what, you know, what are the things that could go wrong? You know, what are the things that we should anticipate? I know it's not what you think is going to happen, but if everything goes wrong, what could happen? You have to think through all of that. Thank you. I have uh, two questions. One, uh, classification and declassification. So we have algorithms, just like we know from the medical field, that, that there are algorithms that are better at spotting patterns than doctors. You may want the doctor to be the one who tells you you have cancer, not the algorithm, but, but the algorithm turns out to be better at seeing the pattern and predicting that you, you may have a cancerous uh, tumor. There's been pilot cases where AI is better at declassifying and classifying information. You give it to five people, two of them say it's unclassified, two say it's classified, and the third, the fifth has fallen asleep. But here's the problem, no one will use it because it's too scary to let an algorithm loose on something and then rely on the results where sources and methods are concerned or where anything's concerned that's secret. Um, how do you convince people so we've been talking about things that make make us nervous about AI, but how do you convince people to use a tool that can make us better, that improves our capacity? I'm more, I'm also concerned. I'm not con, I'm not just concerned about the bad use of AI, but I'm concerned like, hey, I gave this cool tool to Corin Stone and she's never used it, right? Or Baker, he can't even turn his phone on. You know, what, 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 how do we get people to use this and get the maximum value out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you raise an important point, especially when it comes to the intelligence community, where the explainability is paramount. We can't walk into the president and say, you know, sir, we, we think this is going to happen. And he says, why do you think that? And we say, because the algorithm told us so. We have to understand why it's doing what it's doing um, and have our own level of confidence in the data that went in in what the algorithm did with it and, and some level of traceability and interpretability. And I don't know that that exists today. And I think if we want people to really use it, I, I think people will dabble, they'll play around with it. I mean, we're all curious, you know, we'll use it on things that don't matter too much. Um, but you're right, probably not on predicting cancer right now, um, perhaps, because that really matters. And maybe not in predicting, you know, for the president, what's going to happen, because that really matters. Um, and I think until we have a better way um, of understanding the layperson, understanding, um, you know, what is happening with the data? How is it doing its work? And that there's some way to trace it back. And I don't know what that's going to look like because I think to me, that seems enormous, like an enormous task to be able to trace back through how it made those predictions or decisions. Um, 
But I think, you know, you've got to build trust with your, with your consumer and your audience and, you know, just blindly saying, trust me, it's good stuff. Um, especially when we know it can be spoofed and fooled. We've seen this, the basic, the simple, simple examples of like, it's a stop sign. And then when you put a yellow sticky on it, it's a panda bear and now it's been spoofed. So, you know, it can be super easily, easily tricked. And so even if everybody does everything right, I want to know that it's secure and nobody can get in there and spoof it. And so I, th I think that, you know, for, again, you know, maybe this is one where you dip your toe in the water and you go small before you go big and you prove out the concepts and the theories on things that are less important, that aren't life and death. Um, and that, you know, you start to have an understanding and a comfort level with how it's operating and, and the security around it and why it's coming out with the predictions it's coming out with or the anomalies it's spotting. And then you can start to kind of expand it into bigger areas where maybe more is riding on it. But I think that takes some time that maybe we don't have because people are using it against us all the time. And I think this is sort of the, the issue, you know, we want to reason through this as humans. Um, and, you know, all around the world, people aren't as concerned about some of this stuff. Um, and so they're just using it and they're using it now. Uh, and so how do we both, you know, how do we have our cake and eat it too? How do we use it now to best effect, protect against the concerns and also get a level of comfort with it that, I don't know, I, I'm sure some people do have today, probably engineers who really understand this stuff, but um, I, I don't really understand it well enough to feel like I would want to make a life or death decision on it, even though it probably is smarter than me when it comes to coming through all that data. So I think that's a huge, a huge issue. Um, and one that really impacts the intelligence community in particular, in terms of being able to really trace back how that information came out, because if we can't tell our customers why we think something and we can't repeat it, we don't know how to make it a repeatable process that, yep, the same data went in and the same answer came out nobody's gonna be able to rely on it or use it at all. So I think that's huge. Uh, you mentioned good data and knowing you have good data. Um, there've been some stories recently uh, about different government agencies buying data on the commercial market. Does it concern you uh, that the government um, is buying data on the commercial market for AI applications, perhaps to train data, to test data, field AI? Um, should there be rules about that or should we just uh, march forward asserting the third party doctrine and no right to privacy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting as I think about it, you know, data for sale issue. And, and first of all, I think if people are selling data, I think the same issues apply regardless of whether the government, I mean, I get that the government is different than the private sector, don't get me wrong, but if the government's buying it, if other companies are buying it, if foreign governments are buying it, like I wanna know who's selling what data. And if it's mine, I wanna know whether I had an opportunity to say, don't sell my data. So first is, you know, is this data, data that was gathered through a voluntary, here's my data, take it and do whatever you want with it. Or is it data that they gathered because they just happened to kind of cull through stuff and pull my data and I don't know anything about it. If it's the former, I feel like it's a little bit of an easier conversation. I said, sell my data. I said, it's okay. I'm selling my data. Everybody needs training data. Presumably it's not that sensitive, but if it's the latter and it's really, you know, stuff that they're just scraping from the internet that none of us are aware of, then I think that's an issue broader than the government. I think that's an issue that we need to grapple with in terms of what do we want people doing with our data? What are the rights around our data and how do we think it should be used going forward? I certainly think there are issues with what the government does versus what the private sector does. And I recognize that's, again, a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but one of the challenges with AI for the government, which I have was, was going to 
get to in a little bit is in fact data and that there isn't enough training data um, out there generally, but then even, even the stuff that's for sale and the stuff that is out there isn't necessarily the kind of training data that the IC would need all the time, right? So if we're looking for, let's say, you know, um, North Korean nukes or the Russian football, like there's not a whole lot of training data out there to show us what that might look like. There may be two or three incidents that, you know, are, are on the web because, you know, Kim Jong has put it on the web, but you know, there's not, um, there's not a lot of training data out there for a lot of the highest priorities in the IC. Those high priorities are all about that kind of stuff. It's counterterrorism, counter WMD. It's, you know, the things you would think about. So that is a problem for the, for the IC certainly and for the government in terms of just getting the right training data. And I think then generally, yeah, I mean, buying data, if it's for sale to everyone, it's for sale. I mean, I can see the argument. The pros are, look, it's for sale. It's out there. It's publicly available. We have money. We can buy it. I see that argument. I also see the flip side of, wait a second, we didn't know the government was going to buy this. And obviously the government has different powers and authorities over the society than the private sector does. And so, you know, that's always a sensitive line in terms of what the government can do with things versus what the private sector can do with things. And I think that's a conversation we need to have because I can imagine the scenario where they thought, well, it's, you know, it's public, so we could buy it just like everyone else without kind of having that bigger picture of, wait a second, you know, when the government buys it, is it something different? And what are we doing with it? And how transparent can we be about what we're doing with it? I think that's that's an important follow-up, right? What are we doing with it? How are we using it? How are maybe we not using it? Maybe we want those principles there, right? Depending on where, what the data is in. So I think that gets back around to, you know, this, this particular scenario or context might invite, uh, this is what we're not doing with it rule. Oh, it's been our great pleasure. It really has. It's always uh, fun to have a conversation with you. And it's always fun in part because you come away from the conversation inspired by the mission, but also believing in the law as part of that mission. Uh, thank you, Corin Stone. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the AI trail. And I thank you for having me. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 